This week's three topics. Social scientist Michael Peterson on why people believe outrageous lies. Facebook shuts down political ad research, daring the U.S. to regulate it. And social media at the Olympics. The date is Sunday, August 8th, 2021. The time is 2100 hours. And you're listening to episode number 11 of Communicate for Effect. You're listening to the Communicate for Effect podcast, covering the strategies and tactics of digital communication. This is the place for a quick weekly download of news, tips, and information to help you become a more effective digital communicator. Now, here's your host, Mike Nicholson. And a good Sunday evening to you all. I'm Mike Nicholson. Do you ever ask yourself, why do all these people around me believe these outrageous lies, you know, on the news and in politics, especially when many of those lies can be proven to be false? Um, I, I do all the time, actually. And and that's what social scientists Michael Peterson, Matthias Osmundson, and John Tooby were also asking themselves. Um, they recently wrote a thesis paper titled the evolutionary psychology of conflict and the functions of falsehood. And Paul Rosenberg from Salon Magazine interviewed them. Uh, Rosenberg's article starts by you know, setting the stage. Um, he, he's citing Noah Chomsky's book, Man, uh, Manufacturing Consent. And in there, it challenged the notion that those who believe in outrageous lies you know, do so out of ignorance. Uh, he also cited the memorable line from um, an academic study on the coverage of the first Gulf War, uh, the more you watch, the less you know. And then fast forward to kind of the social media age, and there's discussion around the topic of motivated reasoning, or using the more common phrase, you know, people hear what they want to hear. Um, so their thesis, uh, you know, by these three social scientists, revolve around deception being part of humans' evolutionary history because it provides an advantage. Quote, being part of a successful social group was every bit as essential as food and water. So deception among humans evolved from group conflicts, end quote. And, and that's the premise of their current work. Um, it, it seeks to illuminate the evolutionary foundations and social processes involved in the spread of outright falsehoods. Now, from the interview, uh, here are a few sections that I'd, I'd like to highlight that kind of stuck out to me. The sections are the narrative using nature as a model, group mobilization, group loyalty, and then the intended effect. So the first highlight is a section on the traditional narrative of those that believe these outrageous lies. What they say is this, quote, the traditional narrative is, well, if you believe false things, then you must be stupid. It must be because you haven't really made an effort to actually figure out what is going on. But over the last few decades, more and more research has accumulated that suggests that's not the case. In fact, the people who are responsible for spreading misinformation 
are not those who know the least about politics. They actually uh, know quite a lot about politics, end quote. Uh, this is something that I must say I, I ask myself all the time when, when I watch the news. Um, does this person actually believe this nonsense, or are they just saying it to be bold and to get headlines? Um, I, I think the answer is there are some out there that say things publicly that aren't true because they are politically or financially motivated for doing so. Then there are some who are receivers of that information that are you know, blinded by their loyalty to a group. And then there are some who are just you know, plain ignorant. Now, the second highlight of this um, is that they use nature as a model for why people believe in outrageous lies. Quote, animals are trying to get an upper hand in conflict situations by making false signals. First, that is also what we should expect that humans do, that if they can send false signals that are advantageous to them, then they should do it. That means there might be certain advantages within one group to spread mis uh, misinformation and spread falsehoods, if that can give them an upper hand in conflict with the other group, end quote. So this goes back to those that know what they are saying isn't true, but they're saying it anyway because it provides them some kind of advantage. So here they're they're talking about those that are communicating the false information, not those that are receiving it. So in the third section that I'm you know highlighting is the mobilization of a group. Or in nature, it's the signaling that I'm in trouble. They say, quote, uh, when you want to mobilize your group, what you need to do is find out uh, that we are facing a problem or your way of describing that problem needs to be as attention grabbing as possible before you can get the group to focus on the same thing. In that context, the reality is seldom as juicy as fiction. By enhancing the threat, for example, by saying things that are not necessarily true, then you are uh, in a better situation to mobilize and coordinate the attention of your group, end quote. Uh, this to me is, you know, just political communication, uh, not all political communication, but, you know, there are obviously those that choose to utilize their position in the media for what they call attention grabbing to push their agenda. This section on mobilization and the next section, you know, they kind of go hand in hand. So the next sec uh, section is on loyalty to a group. And if you're loyal to a group, then when you're signaling a problem with attention-grabbing rhetoric, you can rally the troops, even if what you're saying is known to be an exaggeration or just, you know, an outright lie. So they say, quote, humans are constantly focused on signals of loyalty. Are they loyal members of the group? And how can I signal that I'm a loyal member? A good way to signal that I'm a loyal member to this group and not that group is to take a belief that is the exact opposite of what the other group believes. So that creates pressure not only to develop bizarre beliefs, but also bizarre beliefs that this other group is bad, is evil, or something really opposed to the particular values that they have. So while there is this motivation or incentive to create content as bizarre as possible, there is also another pressure to 
another incentive to avoid the situation where you're being called out by people who are not motivated to engage in the collective action. That suggests it's better to develop content about situations where the other people have a difficult, difficult time saying that's blatantly false. So that's why unverifiable information is the optimal kind of information because there you can really create as bizarre content as you want and you don't have the risk of being called out, end quote. So the first part of this that says a good way to signal that I'm loyal to this group and not that group is to take on a belief that exact opposite of what the other group believes. To me, th this is U.S. COVID politics right now. You know, take a position that is the exact opposite of the other political party, even if it is negatively impacting the health of your own loyal followers. Uh, this sums up discussions I've had with numerous people over the last, you know, five years or so. I, I think there are some who are more loyal to a political party than to their country. You know, their, their political party is their identity. It can do no wrong. Uh, in the interview, you know, he touches on religion a little bit as well and how some of the religious mentality, you know, not beliefs, is carried over uh, to politics. Um, and then remember in the first section, he said, people who are responsible for spreading misinformation are not those who know the least about politics. They actually know quite a lot about politics. He's talking about the the person spreading the, uh, the misinformation, not the receivers of that information. The receivers of that information, you know, they put loyalty to the group over everything else. And okay, finally, in the final section is basically the ultimate effect. Here's what they say, quote, evolution cares about material benefits and in the end, reproductive benefits. So the beliefs that you have should in some way shape real world outcomes. We are arguing that these false beliefs don't just make uh, don't just exist to make you feel good about yourself, but exist in order to enable you to make changes in the world, to mobilize your group, and get help from other group members. I think that's an important part, uh, an important point to think about what it, uh, what it is that certain kinds of beliefs enable people to accomplish, and not just how it makes them feel. End quote. So I, I will add that I think that those that know what they're saying is false are doing so because they know they have the loyalty of a group. But at least in my mind, they often frame the issue as a crisis for the group when it's really, you know, a crisis for them personally. You know, people want to gain or remain in power. They are politically motivated. They are financially motivated. So interesting, interesting article and a paper. Um, I'll of course put the links in the show notes. Some of this, I, and probably many of you probably felt that this was the case, but it's, you know, it's nice seeing some of this explained out in a more structured way than, you know, just a gut feeling. Uh, that doesn't mean you have to like it, but it does help to understand it. This past Tuesday, Facebook stopped a team of researchers from NYU from studying political ads and COVID-19 misinformation by blocking their personal accounts, pages, apps, and the access to its platform. So NYU's Ad Observatory 
has used a browser add-on since 2020 to collect data about the political ads users see on Facebook. Now, they receive permission from everyone who used their add-on, but the article says, quote, Facebook's attempt to stop their research has more sinister roots in the platform, trying to stop the academics from exposing problems. In a statement, researchers said Facebook has also effectively cut off access to more than two dozen other researchers and journalists who get access to Facebook data through our project. And they said, quote, the work our team does to make data about disinformation on Facebook transparent is vital to a healthy internet and a healthy democracy. The converse of this, Facebook uh, spokesperson Joe Osborne said that Facebook has a requirement to create rules for a privacy program that the researchers violated. Now, who's correct? I don't know. You can you can decide for yourself. But you know, deleting the personal accounts, if, if that is indeed what they did, seems like overreach uh, and maybe also an indicator. Um, now, the group is now calling for increased regulation of Facebook and social media companies, saying. You know, the public urgently needs to know uh, and needs to understand the implication of Facebook's platform for public discourse and democracy. The Olympics just wrapped up, and I watched exactly zero minutes of it on TV, um, just being a cable cutter myself. The only clips I saw were, you know, short clips on social media. So I was curious to see this this last article where the International Olympic Committee said that sharing videos on social media from the Tokyo Games was not allowed. And it's not allowed because of you know broadcaster rights. The IOC will receive more than $4 billion in broadcasting rights for the period that includes uh, the 2018 Winter Olympics and the Tokyo Games. Uh, basically with the biggest chunk of money coming from NBC universal and it paid over $7 billion for the rights to broadcast the Olympics through to 2032. Now the IOC says that 90% of that income is redistributed to athletes and sports, but they were trying to crack down on sports stars that were posting videos on their social media accounts. Um, there was a Jamaican sprinter, was blocked from Instagram for a while because she posted videos of her, you know, 102 meter races. Uh, she's got 300,000 followers. Uh, there've been a lot of videos on TikTok and some other platforms by, by athletes. And they said that still photos are okay, but the videos are not. So I think if you, if you fast forward another four years from now, um, next, you know, the next Olympics, I'll bet they're going to have to take some kind of drastic measures because I don't see social video decreasing anytime soon. You know, it will obviously rapidly increase in four years and, and companies like NBC who paid $7 billion still need to make sure that their investment was worthwhile. So that's it for number 11. If you have any questions or comments for me, just go to 46alpha.com and shoot me a note. You can subscribe to Last 24 Daily News Summary or follow my Flipboard magazine if you want to read more articles that I find interesting on digital comms, marketing, and technology. I'm Mike Nicholson, and I'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening to Communicate for Effect, a 46 Alpha podcast. 
be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or wherever you like to receive your podcasts. You can find all this and much more at 46alpha.com.